I will be reading from uh, Judges chapter 15, verses 9 through 20. Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. The men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. They said to him, We have come down to bind you up so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand and named that place Ramoth Lehi. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that the water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned, and he revived. Therefore, he named it En-Hakur, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Can you hear me now? It just so happens this is the title of the message, which we'll get to in a minute or two. Um, I had an interesting experience this week. And I uh, wanted to share it with you. I got a call from a fellow that I met and talked to uh, a long time ago. Long before I got into the ministry, uh, actually some, um, I'm dating myself here, 30 some years. And uh, this fellow was effusive. And I'm listening, 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 and, and kind of pulling my hair out, trying to remember who he is and what the context was. Couldn't. He reminded me that um, he and I were both students at uh, UCD, University of Colorado in Denver. Um, and I, apparently I had taken uh, a brief course there. Um, sort of a um, let's get you farther into um, sort of a remedial course um, and uh, was not a great time for me because God was 
trying to, and you know when, when God tries to, he succeeds, right? Uh, he was trying to reposition me from a career in the sciences to a, a career in the ministry. And, uh, you know, I've always been one of these highly stiff-necked type folks that uh, requires a lot of conversation. And I stand before you to tell you that God is up to the task. He is big enough even when we are utterly clueless. And uh, this was not a, a great time in my life because it was a time of transition, sort of, uh, what's it all about, Alfie, you know? And, um, and yet this fellow said that the conversations he and I had were life-transforming for him. And I stood back and I said, Lord, you've got a sense of humor. And it brought me to a basic... Um, reality, basic perspective that my vision, our vision of reality and God's vision of reality are often two different things because we see the facts on the ground and yes, God does see the facts on the ground. However, he operates from the larger perspective, from the heavenly perspective that sees not only reality as it is right this moment, but reality as it has been and will continue and will unfold. And it's so difficult for us to get our arms around that because all we can see is the rabbitville kind of a perspective rather than the eagle's eye perspective. And um, as we read Samson's life story, there's a lot in it that we don't get. Um, he sort of looks like a, a Jewish Hercules. Um, at least that's the popular misperception that we have. I also thought of Arnold Schwarzenegger, how he, in, in one particular movie, I don't remember the name of it, but um, he is coming to rescue his daughter and he's got a uh, uh, rocket-propelled grenades and, and a uh, machine gun and a bazooka and several other grenades and things hanging from his um, belt and so on and so forth. He comes and throws, kills these guys, these guys, these guys, and, and comes in and uh, is involved in the battle for her. And that's sometimes what we think about Samson. Um, we also get the fact that he was not exactly Mother Teresa. You know, you look at his life, and, uh, and we, of course, from our perspective, tend to point a bony finger at him and say, God, how on earth can you use this guy? Part of what we see in this picture is that when he acts and does these miracles, they don't seem to be initially connected to God, but they seem to be driven by his anger and his narcissistic approach. I want to do what I want to do. And, and his response seems to be uh, highly disproportionate. 
For example, going all the way back to, to the time when he married and um, during the wedding feast, people persuaded um, his wife to, tell, to give them the secrets of a riddle he gave them. And Samson got so angry that he killed 30 people, 30 of the Philistines. Um, another time, um, Samson was upset that the Philistines then came back and killed his wife and her family. And so he killed people, and, and the Hebrew is very expressive, he killed people ferociously, great slaughter. Then, of course, there's a story that, um, that we saw today in this chapter where Samson op- is opposed by several thousand Philistines and he kills a thousand men. And it's hard for us to get our arms around that because this doesn't seem to, to be a typical picture of what, what we would consider to be a hero of the faith. But part of what we need to understand as we step back is that there are at least a couple of different levels of reality. And yes, there is first of all the reality that smacks us in the face. One reality is that Samson shows a complete and utter disregard for the Torah. He was selected by God to be a Nazarite. And and you know in in, uh, Numbers chapter 6, where, where the Nazarite vow is explained in all the details, one of the factors was the fact that a Nazarite was pro- prohibited from touching a dead body. And what does Samson do? He kills the lion, and then sometime later, he comes and he touches the lion. And it so happens he found honey there, and he took the honey... And, and ate it, but just by the mere fact of his touching the lion, he already was breaking the Nazarite vow that his parents undertook on his behalf. Nazarites were forbidden from drinking wine. And what does Samson do? Part of the celebration of his, uh, of his marriage was an eight-day drinking binge. I mean, folks, that's reality. Um, And then, of course, there is the fact that Samson goes to Gaza, which, by the way, in Hebrew is Aza. Um, We still have the Philistines among us, by the way. Um, He sees sees a prostitute, and he decides to go and spend the night with her. Uh, Samson, what's wrong with that picture? Do you not get it? Then, of course, the pièce de résistance, the final, um, the straw that broke the camel's back, is he, he allowed his hair to be, to be cut. And at that point, the Lord stepped in and said, All right, Samson, enough is enough. You are supposed to be the judge, judging Israel and judging the Philistines on my behalf. And you're going to experience my judgment because you broke 
the basic commission that I had given you. You, you broke the basic commandments. And at least for us, when we look at Samson, I, I suspect our inclination would be to look at Samson and say, you're out of here. Um, you broke the Torah. You showed yourself to be unfit for the commission that God had given you. Um, you're going to be pitched to the ash heap of history. And you know, God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Even when he sees Samson doing what he's doing with what seems to be a, a very uh, narcissistic perspective. You, you know, when you, see, when you see what Samson does, he doesn't say, I am going to avenge my people, but rather he says, I'm going to avenge myself. Basically, he's very, he seems to be very self-centered. Seem to be very... Um, indifferent at least superficially very indifferent to the suffering of his people but what we have to realize when we step back is that God is powerfully at work in Samson's life in fact you find in Samson more references to the activity of the spirit of God than you find in all the other judges at least four references that speak about the fact that the Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, came and was powerfully engaged in Samson's life. Let me just mention a couple of them. It first of all begins with the fact that Samson was minding his own business. He was a young fellow at that time. This is in Judges 13. The Spirit of God began to stir in him while he was in Machane Dan. A very brief, very pithy expression of what's taking place, and that's typical of Hebrew. Hebrew is very, biblical Hebrew is very terse, very packed. The Spirit of God began to stir in him while he was in Machane Dan. A couple of things we need to extract out of that. First of all, it is clear that the Spirit of God stirred in him, not just at that point, but at other points later on. And second of all, the Hebrew word for stirring has a sense of disturbing, like the Holy Spirit coming to Samson and saying, Samson, wake up and smell the coffee. Do you see what's going on? The people of Israel had been under bondage to the Philistines. Why? Because they did evil in the sight of God. And the Lord delivered them. The Lord was actively involved in, in their judgment and gave them over to the Philistines for 40 years. And the Philistines did all kinds, took all kinds of action to oppress the people of Israel. And this went on not just 40 years, but it... it continued for about 200 years until David came on the throne and uh, until David came on the scene and he was empowered by God to put a stop to it. But the Philistines sent out raiding parties, you know. Life is boring. We don't know what to do. Well, we'll go and, 
and harassed the Israelites. Uh, another part of the picture was the fact that in all of Israel, and we see this later on in Samuel, all of Israel could not have a blacksmith. Imagine that. You know, you, you couldn't sharpen your knife, you couldn't sharpen your axe. You had to go to the Philistine territory in order to do that. And then, of course, charge you through the nose, mouth, ear, and throat, and etc. It was very oppressive. It was designed by God to be oppressive. Why? To get the people of Israel to wake up and say, Lord, help us. We get the fact that we strayed, we chased all these other idols, all these idols, we want to come back to you. But at this point, they don't get it. They do not get it. In fact, Samson is the only one who is waking up, and he is waking up because the Spirit of God came on him and disturbed him and bugged him. And got him to understand that the situation was intolerable, unacceptable. Have you been in situations like that where you seem to be dumb, fat, and happy? You do what you're doing and you're not paying attention at some point. God gets a hold of you and says, all right, this is not okay. This needs to stop. And enable us, enables us to change. And that's what you find with Samson. You see this transformation. And by the way, in case you're not aware of it, the Holy Spirit was alive and well and active pre-Pentecost. Yes? Hello? Then there are three other occasions when it speaks about the fact that the Spirit of God came on Samson. Very interesting Hebrew word, Salach, which can mean either to, to do something suddenly or to cause somebody to, to be effective and successful in what they're doing. Both of these ideas are there. The Spirit of God comes on Samson and empowers him to do what he is supposed to do and to do it effectively. And some of what we see Samson doing Really, really, really does not make sense. Um, the last time I checked, none of us has come to a lion who is ready to attack us and just torn him from limb to limb, torn his mouth, etc. Uh, we, we don't really connect that with the Holy Spirit, right? You have to understand that he is just going minding his business and this lion is coming at him to devour him. But again, this notion of the Holy Spirit coming on Samson to do that just doesn't make sense. And, and the other occasions, this is in, in Judges 14, 6. Then um, in another case where Judges 14, 19, the Spirit of God comes upon him. He goes to Ashkelon, southern Israel, and he kills 30 people. Again, we don't connect that with, with the Holy Spirit. And then here in this chapter, the Holy Spirit comes upon him in power and, and he tears off the ropes that are on him. By the way, it, it shows you, if you're noticing as, we're, as Bix was reading, it shows you the utter cluelessness of the people. Here, this guy is the champion of the people. He's rising up to defend the people. 
And what do they do? They're, they're shaking their boots. They say, Samson, we don't want any trouble. Here, we're going to bind you and give you over to the Philistines so that they can do with you what, what they want. Absolutely demoralized. And the Holy Spirit acts in Samson. By the way, what's also interesting here that really grabbed my attention, you know, sometimes we tend to talk about the Holy Spirit as a force, as an it. Please don't do that. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's part of the the complex unity of God. And when Samson's eyes were poked out, he wakes up to the fact that God had left him. What is that saying? It's saying that Spirit of God is God. Identity, equation here. But in any event, part of the other thing that's really puzzling to me as you read Samson's life, um, there doesn't seem to be much of a connection with God. Unlike David, where David is preparing for battle and, and he is wanting to go to, to fight the enemies and, and he is inquiring of God. He is getting word to the priest who is probably um, using the Urim and Tumim. I won't get into that. And, and basically wanting to find out Lord, do you want me to go fight and what do you want me to do? And God was faithful to give David those answers. You don't find that with Samson. He seems to be driven by, I don't know, narcissism, uh, anger, or hormonal imbalance. Lord knows exactly what. You don't see Samson stopping and praying. Until he is up against a wall. And yet, you have to step back and say, Lord, what were you doing in Samson's life? Part of the process is that the Lord is working with him. And bottom line, folks, is God has your cell phone number. Do you hear me? He has your, your email address. He has your Facebook address. He has all of that, folks. If he doesn't get, get you through one medium, he'll use another medium. In David's case, because his heart overflowed for God, the Lord didn't need to use a two-by-four. And folks, here is basic reality. God will not use a two-by-four if you and I are sincerely seeking to listen to Him. Two-by-four is not God's option A. Can you say amen to that? His preferred mode is to speak to us. case of Samson, God had to put him between a rock and a hard place. He killed... A thousand Philistines. Again, this is mind-boggling. If I was facing 3,000 or so Philistines, my first inclination is to say, I'm out of here. I'm gone. Uh, Forget the heroics. I'm gone. 
And, and Samson stands there, takes a jawbone of a donkey. And I really don't get this, folks. I really don't get how it works. One of the questions I'll ask the Lord when I see him, bottom line is he stands there, he kills a thousand men. And he gets tired, he gets weary, and he gets thirsty. Well, uh, I would too. Israel, being hot, you get thirsty. And, and he is crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, um, you did this awesome thing, great victory here, salvation actually in Hebrew. What's going to happen? Is all this going to go to waste? Am I going to die because of these Philistines? cries out to God. Then, of course, when he is in, in the temple of the Philistine idol, probably Dagon, also he cries out to God. So at least a couple of examples. Did that, was that the only time that Samson prayed? Probably not, but that's the only occasion we, we see here in Scripture. So again, what, what, do you get, what do you get from Samson's life? And we need to step back carefully because there are things about Samson's life we want to imitate and we want to follow. And there are things about Samson's life we do not want to follow, yes? Uh, you want to follow everything that Samson did? I hope not. But Scripture's perspective is different than ours, folks. That's the thing that we have to understand. The writer of Hebrew tells us, Hebrews 11, What more should I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdom, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Through faith. The commentary of scripture here in, his, in Hebrews 11 tells us that somehow in the process of this, this uh, what appears to be Mishigas sometimes, craziness, Samson acted in faith. Now, I can see that. You know, you're standing facing 3,000 men. Um, I would expect that there would be a basic faith, basic trust in God somehow that Lord... Uh, we're going to take care of this, right? Right? Samson acted somehow in the process. He acted in faith. But the bottom line of all of this, folks, the bottom line of all of this is the fact that God was in control. Let me say that again. God was in control in Samson's life, in Israel's life, just like he is today with, with, a, with a silliness in the United Nations. God is in control and he is working his plans. He is working his plans. And in fact, it's almost funny, I say almost funny, that God's power is unleashed through Samson's involvement with Philistine women. You get that? God uses Samson's involvement with Philistine women to unleash power. Not my perspective, not my approach, not the 
usual approach, but then everything about Samson was way out of the box. Just goes to show you that God is not limited. He can act out of the box. Amen? That God has a plan for the people of Israel. Yes, they, they, they goofed, they screwed up, they chased idols. They were unfaithful to him. They were treacherous to him. He had to act according to the Torah. By the way, the, the portion that, um, that James mentioned earlier. God had to act. He had to act in judgment. He had to give them over to the Philistines. But he was not done. He was not done. He didn't say to the Philistines, have, have complete control over these guys. Do whatever you want to. No, 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 no. God was still active, still engaged. In fact, what, what we see is that when God spoke to Samson's mother... He said to her, your son will begin to bring about salvation for Israel. He will begin. In other words, he will not get the job done completely. He will begin. He will show those Philistines that there is a God in Israel, that the Philistine gods are not more powerful than the Lord, and most of all, he will show the people of Israel that the Lord is around. He will begin. What is so intriguing about this, that uh, you, you can probably tell I'm excited about this. There's so much here that just jumps out at you. After you, you come in, into this story at, for two or three and, and four passes, Samson, just to give another example, Samson decides that he has to have this Philistine woman. You know, he, he doesn't say, well, I prayed about it, I sought the Lord, um, I got counsel, um, I put out a fleece. He sees this woman, he says, I must have her. It's sort of like a, a kid with a toy, going to a toy shop saying, I've got to have this. You know, my grandson, I have to have this. That's the attitude his parents say to him, Samson, hello. She's a Philistine. She's not one of your people. And they finally um, relent. And scripture says in, in the earlier chapter, his father and his mother did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. Very odd language, folks. Basically implying that God was looking for an excuse to get at the Philistines. Now, when you think about it, it's bizarre. I mean, I mean, the Lord could have sent down fire from heaven and consumed them. He could have done all kinds of things. But he's looking for an excuse to get the ball rolling. Why? Because he had plans... And in his plans and in his calendar, this was the time to begin judgment on the Philistines. And he was working the plan. Now, if you back up and think about your own life, how that there are times when it seems like 
your life doesn't change. You get up in the morning, go to work and go to school or do whatever you do, and every day just the same repeats and hopefully you come to, to Shabbat and you do the things that you normally do, nothing seems to change. And the temptation is to try and find something more exciting, something more uh, entertaining, something that, that will give a spark to your life. And we don't get the fact that God is at work during those apparently dull times, during those dull drums, and that in His time, He will pull back, roll up the sleeves and get to work. It's His time. It's His calendar. And part of wisdom for us, part of maturity for us, is learning to wait on God in patient faith for His great and awesome work to be done in His time. In His time. In His time. In His manner. Rather than get impatient and say, well, Lord, uh, it's nice that you have a plan for me, but I'm going to go for plan B. Something that I can touch and feel and work and manipulate and control. You get that? And God uses this broken pot called Samson to do his work. And no, he breaks the terms of the Nazarite vow. No, he does not lead his people. He's not a general like the other judges, like Gideon, for example, who rallies the people and they go and fight. No, Samson is one man army. And he doesn't get the job done. At the end of his life, the Philistines are still in control. However, in a couple of places, in chapter 15 and chapter 16, we're told that Samson ruled, led Israel for 20 years. In other words, as far as Scripture is concerned, as far as God's perspective... Samson was doing the will of God somehow in this mess and governing and leading the people of Israel. Again, part of the lesson here is that we have to step back and say, God, would you please open my eyes so that I can see through the eyes of faith what it is that you're doing, what it is that's going on, because I'm clueless. God wants his people to recognize the fact that he's at work. <coughs> and God answers him. When Samson calls, God answers him. We're all familiar with the story of how he stood and, and reached and, and knocked these central pillars. And before that, he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, hear me. Let me die with the Philistines. Let me avenge myself. And the Lord heard him. But the one I really wanted to zoom in on 
is here in this chapter, verse, verse 18. Chapter 15, verse 18, here in uh, Judges. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. He gets the fact that he is serving God somehow. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, by the way. That's how it's pronounced. Not Lehi, as in Lehi, Pennsylvania. Um, Bix, I'm not picky on you. Um, Lehi, which means the jawbone. And water came out of it. And Samson drank. His strength returned and he revived. And, and as is the case throughout Scripture, when God does miracles, He doesn't do piddly little miracles. He pulls out His stop and He does great stuff. As in the case of with Elijah, that, that Elijah watered the offering and he watered the, the soil and he watered the, the stones and said, God, I know who you are. Would you please act? And God did. And here, the Lord doesn't give a, a little drip, but he broke the rock somehow. He opened up the hollow place. Interesting geology here, which we, you can speculate. Water comes out, he drinks, he's revived, and he, turns, he returns to doing what he's doing. Before he does that, he calls... Or that place was called En Hakore. And I wanted to park here for a few minutes. Because in scripture, name places are very significant. Because they're, they're typically mile markers. Um, and this uh, Samson story was probably written 150, 200 years after Samson. And the people who are hearing the story know that there is such a place as Lehi where Samson killed a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey or some translations have it, jawbone hill. And there's also a place called a, a, a place where there is a fountain called Ein HaKore. Ein HaKore. The fountain of him who cries, or cries out. What does that tell you? It tells you that this is one of these very special places in Scripture that are a reminder that when we are in places of need and we call out to God, God hears and answers. It's a reminder, just like Mount Moriah where Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide Adonai Yireh. To this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Behar Adonai Yireh. When the accountant in Abraham's life in Genesis written down, people can look at that at Mount Moriah and say, this is the place where God shows up and answers. 
Awesome, isn't it? It was like that with Abraham, the giant of the faith. But it's like that with Samson, who sometimes comes across like Mr. Buffoon. Definitely not Mr. Godly, but someone who has a relation, an abiding relationship with God. And I, I, I want us just to step back for a moment and think about the implications. And think back to times in your life when you cried out to God out of desperation. Can you remember those times? where you realize that you had absolutely no recourse. And by the way, that's actually a wonderful place to be in because then we get it with absolute clarity that the only one who's going to answer us, the only solution we're going to get is from God. At other times we say, well, maybe I'll try this, maybe I'll try that. Maybe he will help me, she will help me. Uh, let me strategize here where you have in hakoreh, you're between a rock and a hard place, and you say, God, unless you come through, I'm going to die. Radical. And God does awesome things when we are at that point of desperation. Because we recognize decisively, dramatically, that we need God. And we place our faith in Him and we cry out and say, Lord, I need you. I need your help. I need your help. And as was the case with Samson, the spring of he who calls, as was the case in Abraham, the place where God will provide Adonai Yir'eh. So it is my expectation, not just hope for us as a congregation that as we are preparing for Rosh Hashanah next week and Yom Kippur, which this period in traditional Judaism is called Yemei HaRatzon, the days of favor, that we will seek God with a deep conviction that we have His favor. That we will come to Him with confident expectation that He is at work in our life, that He has plans for us, that those plans have to be accomplished. They have to be done. Not because of us, but because of Him. God's gifts and calling in our life have to be, have to be fulfilled. And at some point... God opens our eyes and shows us it's not about us, it's not about our failures, which are there. In fact, God uses our failures to get through to us. But it is simply about the fact that He has plans, that He's at work, and those plans have to be accomplished. And at some point, we get it, and we're more tuned in to that and to Him rather than to us and what we do, what we don't do, what we succeed, where we fail, etc. 
and we seek God and we cry out to Him. Folks, I'll tell you, I really believe that during this past week, God did something dramatic and profound during our week of prayer. And visibly and outwardly, I can't point to anything. But in the spirit, I really sensed that God was at work. And, and beginning that I, I really believe that this is his time. That this is his time for things to begin to move dramatically in a way that they haven't before. Not because I say so. That doesn't mean much. But because God has called us into being, into existence. He's given us a vision. And if the vision is His, it has to be fulfilled. Can you say amen to that? For us individually, for us corporately. And yes, you look at yourself, you look at, at, at others in the congregation, you look at us and... And I've, I've heard all kinds of um, minimizing comments, which we all tend to do. You know, we're here in a basement, we're, we're small, we're hidden, etc., etc. But folks, that puts the focus on us, not on Him. The focus has to be on Him. That as we seek Him, as we walk by faith, as we cry out to him and say, Lord, open my eyes. Give me eyes of faith. Show me what you want to do. Give me the soft heart. Circumcise my heart and get me going that direction that he will do that. And that we will take the minimizing comments that are self-focused, self-identity, negative self-identity and say, no, not interested in that. I'm interested in God's great plans that he has for us. Let's embrace that by faith as we prepare for the holidays. Seek the Lord before you come on Rosh Hashanah next Thursday. And say, Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes. Yes, I see the weaknesses. Yes, I see the flesh. Yes, I see all of that. Yes, I see the warfare. I want to see you. Let's pray. Would you please stand? Lord God, we stand in awe of you. We praise you, Lord God, for your infinite patience and faithfulness to us. We praise you, Lord God, that you are faithful, that you cannot deny yourself, especially when we are faithless. We thank you, Father God, for your great and awesome plans and purposes. We pray, Lord God, that this week, as we prepare for Rosh Hashanah, then Yom Kippur, I pray, Lord God, we pray, 
Lord, that you would open our eyes, take the scales off our eyes, Lord God, cause us to see you, to see, Lord, through the eyes of faith, what you are doing, what you're preparing to do, Lord God, and give us the heart of courage, Lord God, to embrace those plans and, and to move in faith and to trust you and be part, Lord God, part and parcel of what you want to do. Give us, Lord God, each of us individually and us corporately as a, as a mishpacha. Give us, Lord God, the passion, Lord God, to see your work being accomplished to see your plans and purposes being fulfilled. Not for our sake, but Lord God, that you will receive all the honor and the glory. We pray, Lord God, asking this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.